In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, Acts 20, can you believe it? I only got eight more chapters to go. I think that will, will probably uh, be, what, the end of August, first week of September, something like that. And uh, then we'll go into the book of Mark, as we've been saying. Isn't that exciting? Just get a vision of the church for a whole year, and then as we step into Mark, Jesus is going to literally walk off the pages of Scripture into your hearts so that you get to know who he is. Uh, and really, that is the most important thing. You know, they have four Gospels have been given to us uh, to, to show us who Jesus is. And then 28 chapters to, to see how we are to live this out and preach Jesus. And uh, we got to see literally, as it says in Acts 17, we literally got to see the world turned upside down. I think we need another one of those moments in, uh, now in, in our time that the world will be turned upside down. The only way that's going to happen is when a church really knows Jesus in the word. And if you turn with me to Acts 20, we're going to see... Paul's love for the church this morning. Paul has such a love for the church. How many know that even in 1 Corinthians, you can know everything, but if you don't have love, you really have nothing. You sound obnoxious, right? It's a clanging gong. It just, we have a gong back there. I've, I thought about bringing it out and just playing that thing over and over and over again as an illustration to show you how ridiculous it would be if we just dive deep in the word week in, week out, week in, week out, and realize that we have just a church full of Pharisees. How tragic would that be if we learn the word and forget what it even is about? As James says that, how could you look in the mirror and find out if there's something wrong with you and then just walk away as if uh, you forgot what the word said? And, And really, you James is calling all of us to be doers of the word. Now, of course, we know we can't do that out of our own strength. We do that out of his strength through the power of the Holy Spirit. But we really do want to have a church that does grow in the knowledge of God, but also grows in love. It's both. And so we're going to see how Paul demonstrates his love in four ways. So if you're taking notes with me, he demonstrates his love in four different ways. He exhorts or feeds his people Number two, he gives. Love is demonstrated by giving. Love is also demonstrated by preaching. Yes, actually preaching the word of God. That is really the most loving thing that you can do uh, is give people the truth. Number three, enduring love. Love is costly. Love is actually going to cost you something. You're gonna find that actually loving is not easy right? But Paul just, he didn't just understand that he, he to, to actually preach the gospel and to uh, invest in people's lives and to give what he had and to promote giving even amongst the other churches in the area, in this place, uh, in this case, Jerusalem. Uh, but he also invested, he invested in disciples. He, it cost him to invest in people's lives. How many know that discipleship is extremely costly? Extremely costly. How many of you are tired of, you know, you sharing the truth with somebody and them really not receiving it and then leaving? 
How many times have you seen that in the last year? The truth is offensive. But it also, Jesus said in another way, he said, the truth sets us free. You shall know the truth and the truth sets us free. That is the most loving thing that you can do. We'll break that down. But Paul, uh, or just recently I heard a, a Q&A by a seminary professor and he asked, what are the most important things a pastor should consider in his first few years? So if you were to plant a church, these are the five things that you must do in the first five years. Number one, trust the word. Love the truth. Live the truth. Preach the truth, right? Number two, invest in men. Raise up elders and leaders. Number three, love and lead your own family. Don't lose it because of ministry. Release people to do ministry. Don't bear the burden yourself. Serve the church. Help others serve the church and evangelize the world, right? And lastly, which we'll highlight, is love your church. Be affectionate towards them. Love them. Really, if you don't have love for people, then why are you in ministry? Of course, that's exemplified in so many different ways. And we'll see how that is demonstrated. Paul demonstrated his love. He didn't just talk about it. But Paul was an incredible model of that. He, comp- he was compelled by Christ, who is love, right? God is love. It says that in 1 John many times. He was extremely affectionate towards them. If you read in Philippians 1, 3 to 7, you know the rapid fire scriptures here. So just jot it down if you can, then go back to it later. So Philippians 1, 3 to 7 says this, I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in every prayer for you all. In view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That's hope, guys. Paul is giving us a promise that if you don't like where you are spiritually, tomorrow is a new day. And he's going to perfect you and make you look more like Christ. We can look more like him every single day of our lives, becoming more and more like him. That is his grace. So Paul, was, his love is showing forth here. It says, for it is only right for me to feel this way about you all. It wasn't some sort of intellectual love that Paul had for his people. He felt love and affection for them. Because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are partakers of grace with me. 2 Corinthians 3.2 says, you are a letter written on our hearts, known and read by all men. 2 Corinthians 7.3, I do not speak to condemn you for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Then he says in 1 Thessalonians 2.7-8, he says, but we have Prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother. We have so many moms in this room and so many more uh, to come, so many more babies. And I, I love that, that Paul is considering himself like a nursing mother. When your baby cries, mom, you don't just leave the baby in the bassinet or the, 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 the crib. You, you, you pick them up. Uh, in fact, uh, you can read that a lot of times babies that have very flat heads in the back, very flat, it's because they were 
they laid there for so long and during their formative years, they, uh, you know, and I, don't feel your head and be like, oh, I'm on love now. <laughs> the Lord loves you. There's a level of truth here, but don't, you know, okay, all right, just the Lord loves you. Whether you have a flat head or a round head, okay? But no mom just lets their kid cry for hours. They pick them up and they nurse them. They feed them. It's a, it is their affection towards their kids. And he's saying a nursing mom tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we are well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but our own lives. Paul demonstrated his love. It wasn't just cheap love. He wasn't just saying, oh, I love you, I love you, I love you. This is Pride Month. They are redefining love every day. They've hijacked the word love, right? Actually, it's the most loving thing. By the way, how many know the pride becomes before the fall? So love is, it, it, love is defined like this, that Jesus died for us while we were sinners, Why we were estranged, separated from him, deserving wrath. We were born children of wrath, including your child. We were all born in sin. We never have to teach our two-year-old how to sin, do we? We were born that way. And the reality is when, when people say, oh, we're born that way. Yes, you're right. You are born that way, but you don't have to stay that way. Because Jesus transforms people's lives. Amen? But it it wasn't a cheap love because he understood that Jesus demonstrated his love in this. And so when you go around just saying, I love you, I love you, I love you, demonstrate it. Yes, sometimes that is by speaking truth. Other times that's by giving. Other times it's persevering. Other times it is laying your life down, dying to self. That is what true love is. It is not void of truth. Because you've become very dear to us, Paul says. 1 John 3.18, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. John 15.13, greater love has no one than this, that no one lay down his life, that one lay down his life for his friends. That is probably the most challenging verse in the Bible. I mean, even if you get to the point where you're like, I love someone so much, I'll just die for them because I love them so much. But Jesus died for his enemies. That is the highest form of love that there is. It is taking ridicule. It is being canceled for love. It is willing to lose your reputation. It doesn't matter. David Brainerd, who worked with uh, the, this is one of our elders, Heath. This is his hero, right, Heath? I don't know where you're at. You probably know this quote. But David Brainerd worked uh, in the time of Jonathan Edwards. He stayed with Jonathan Edwards. And he was uh, really a, a depressed man, but he worked with the Native American Indians and they were not an easy group to work with. Uh, they were really lost. Uh, they were um, into a lot of superstition. 
false religion. And he just struggled with it, but he just said, you know what, this is what God's called me to. These are the people that God has called me to. You know, people always say, you know, hey, you got you to get people going overseas. We got to get people overseas. We got to get, we got to get uh, church plants. You know, you know, people maybe ask me, you got to get, 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 get. I don't get anyone overseas. God does. He's the one that calls people. And David Brainerd was called to the least of these because he was called by God and he loved them. I care not where I go or how I live, or what I endure so that I may save souls. When I sleep, I dream of them. When I awake, they are the first, thought, the first in my thoughts. No amount of scholastic attainment of able and profound exposition of brilliant and stirring eloquence can atone for the absence of a deep, impassioned, sympathetic love for human souls. He loved them. The first thing that I would love to see in a future missionary is love. If you don't have that, you're not going. It is not just to, so you could go overseas or experience another stamp in the passport or get to experience another culture. People do, I hear this. People go overseas. I just, well, I, like, I like other cultures. You're going to experience every culture in heaven. It's going to be a wonderful place. But if you're going to be a missionary, you're going to die. I don't know about physical death, perhaps, maybe, but you're going to die to yourself for the sake of other human beings that are not like you. You sacrifice. You know exactly that people would, it, back in the, uh, when I learned in Moody, when I was in uh, graduate school, they took, they, I read a book, 20, uh, 21 Martyrs, it's a fascinating read, the, the Martyr's Grace. People that they knew their heads would be chopped off in Asia the next day wrote these magnificent, beautiful letters and just said, I'm willing to go. I'm willing to go under the sword for him. What compels someone to do that? We don't know their names, but I guarantee you there are people who have renounced Christ right before the sword. But we also don't know many names that never renounced Christ before the bullet or before the sword. But it was love. That's the only answer. Sure, duty, but duty will only get you so far. Obedience, sure, but it's love. It's a love for Christ and a love for his people. And David Brainerd, he had that. It was incredible. And they, they had, they, they you know, the 21 martyrs, they have, they have, there's letters of just beautiful writings of people who just given their lives. And Paul was one of them. He went all the way to the death for his people. What a model. We must have that before our eyes. We've got to have a model before us to say that is the highest motivation for missions is love. The highest motivation, not to see with our eyes new cultures or to just be with our friends or whatever other motivation there might be. It is love and obedience to him. And of course, Christ said that those who obey me are those who 
those who love, those who do what I say are those who love me. They're, they're one of the same. When we obey Christ, we're saying we love him because the opposite is true. When we sin, we are like our father, the devil, we used to, the old life, and that is still a part of our life. Of course that is still a part of our life. Romans 7 says that, and there's still a battle, but ultimately when we're his, we love Jesus. We're made new, and we desire to live for him. There's also a cost to shepherd and love the church. Love is tested. Your love will be constantly tested until Jesus comes back. Don't be uh, surprised by that, right? It says in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three to 29, I always read this when you have a bad day, right? Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane, I more so, in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, Beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day, and night and day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. Sounds like a missionary. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And listen to this, apart from such external things, those are bad. There is the daily pressure on me of, a con- of the concern for all the churches who is weak without being weak, who is led into sin without my intense concern. I, I, that's amazing to me. I would think, and everyone here would say, that the former is much worse. I think I can deal with a few disgruntled church members and uh, them falling into sin. Uh, You could save the 39 lashes five times. I'd be okay with disgruntled church. (laughs) He said that was worse. That just shows his love for people. And what that does to all of us is say, hey, none of us, have attained that. So you know what that does is it puts us in this humble position to ask God, please give me love for my spouse, for my kids, for my church, for my enemies. We have so much more to go, right? Second Corinthians 7, 5, and 6, for even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without and fears within. Philippians 2.17, but even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. Colossians 1.24, I now rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church and filling up what is lacking Christ's afflictions. Scripture after scripture after scripture, this sounds so foreign to so many of us, doesn't it? Can anybody just stand up and just stand up confidently? I am just like Paul. You know, people say, I'm just like Paul. I'm a Paul. Really? John Piper says this, selfishness seeks its own private happiness at the expense of others. But love seeks its happiness in the happiness of the beloved, It will even suffer and die for the beloved in order that its joy might be 
full in the life and purity of the beloved. That's love. I desire that they know Christ and him crucified. And I'll do whatever it takes for them to know him. I'll sacrifice socially. I'll sacrifice physically. I'll sacrifice in every way so that they would know Christ. That's the kind of disciple Jesus wants us to be. That's the kind of leader he wants us to be. And like I said, even at the wedding yesterday, that the kind of love that a husband must have for his wife is a self-denying, self-sacrificing love. It's dying to yourself every day. It's dying a thousand deaths over and over and over and over again. As soon as you feel the offense rise up, you are to push that down, right? I mean, it, 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 you just feel it rising up. You feel like I have to defend myself. I have to, I, I, I have to let them, know. I mean, it just, it's, a, it's a place where we say, enough's enough. Die to self. Lose your life so that you might find it. Defending yourself is one of the most selfish things you can do. And Paul didn't, didn't do any of that. He continually denied himself both physically, emotionally, and spiritually for his people. And like I said, as we're taking notes, just to, if you're following along, the, there's four displays of God's love in Acts 20, verse 1 through 17 this morning. Paul's love for the church or a church in action. In other words, this is what a healthy church looks like. Is one, when we are exhorting one another, number one, Number two, we are giving to each other. Number three, we are continually persevering in love when it's hard. And number four, we're to invest in each other's lives and that requires a death to self daily. So number one, Paul fed and exhorted his church. In verse one, it says, after the uproar had ceased, and what was the uproar? The uproar was in Ephesus. There was a riot there because they exposed the lies of false religion. Paul sent the disciples, and when they, he had exhorted them and taken his leave of them, he left to go to Macedonia. And when he had gone through those districts, he had given them much, much exhortation, and then he came to Greece. So we'll pause there. But you know, it, it would be really easy for Paul, and I guarantee you most of us, after we've experienced a riot and we almost died, I think the last thing that we would want to do is go exhort more people, Right? Paul's like a machine. He's just like, I got to find more people. When he finds them, he's exhorting, irregardless of the riot and the consequences. But things were heating up, right? This is towards, I mean, I, I'm, when I leave for, uh, I have a, a lot of meetings uh, in, in, in school in Los Angeles and Texas, and I'll be gone for five Sundays. They're going to be going through the trials of Paul when he was before uh, the Jews, and he's then uh, before Festus and Felix and etc. And there he's going through the trials, and you get to hear Paul's uh, defense and how much he loves his people. Uh, what a wonderful thing. Don't look at those passages and think those are boring. It's the word of God, and they're very important to us. We can learn so much from them. So I'm actually excited for you guys to go through those as well. But Paul is moving towards the end of his life. He's moving towards Jerusalem. He knows that. He knows that his time is coming to an end, most likely. He has nothing to lose. He already died. Can't kill a dead man, as we said, right? 
He's not interested in his own life. He's interested in getting the word out to the Jews and also he can't wait to get to Rome and then ultimately if the Lord wills that he'd get to Spain. But perhaps these people were fearful of more persecution. They were. They, they knew that things were heating up. I mean, things went from just get out of my city kindly to now a full-blown riot and if you got caught in the middle of that, you'd die. And anywhere in between there, imprisonments and beatings. This thing is getting more intense. And we find that true today, right? It's becoming more intense if you speak the truth. But that was Paul's main ministry, Acts 4, or I'm sorry, Acts 6, 4. This is the job of the elders of the church is prayer and the ministry of the word, right? As a congregation, the reason why we speak about these things is this is a, a sort of accountability for the right thing. In other words, you want the elders of the church to be occupied, especially the pastor and teacher, to be occupied with the word and with prayer. Why? So that the church is built up into maturity. It's for your benefit. It's for our benefit. Listen to this. I'm going to rattle off a lot here, so buckle up. Acts, ready to unload. You ready? I want to show you that there is no question that the highest priority of the church today is to preach God's word. Acts 10.42 says, he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. Acts 13.5 and 32, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues and we preach to you good news of the promise made to the fathers, Acts 14, 7 and 21, and they were continued, and they continued to preach the gospel. And after they preached the gospel, they went to other cities and they preached the gospel. Acts 15, 35, but Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch, teaching and preaching with many others, also the word of the Lord. Acts 16, verse 10, when he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia to do what? Concluding that God has called us to preach the gospel. And then Acts 28, 32, or 31, this is how Paul basically, or Luke, ends the book of Acts, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, unhindered. Are you convinced? If not, 1 Timothy 4, 13, until I come, give attention to what? Public reading of scripture. What Mike did today before the offering was the most brilliant thing any man of God can do is just simply read the word. It's amazing. Even yesterday, uh, I couldn't believe it. I just, all I did was read Ephesians 5 and just say a few things about what husbands and wives should do. And I kid you not, four or five different people came up to me and said that was incredibly convicting. I said, all I did was read the word. Why is there such a lack of exhortation today then in churches? Why? There is a decline and there is ultimately a reason why we have declined in preaching today because we've downplayed the scriptures. We actually don't believe that it's inerrant, inspired, sufficient, authoritative, preserving, right? Sermons are now replaced with ethical addresses, homilies, 
moral uplifts, talks, debates, sociopolitical and sentimental talks. They're also replaced with the forms of entertainment. I saw the other day that a pastor had uh, up in front here in South Florida a roller coaster. There, there's a big roller coaster, and they're coming out, and the pastor's like, Woo! Welcome to church, everyone! No gospel. No word of God. Another thing that's replaced with was celebrity testimonies. Somehow we think if we could get everybody in a room and we have Justin Bieber share the gospel, then everyone will certainly be saved. You know what you're doing? You're downplaying the scripture, realizing that a scrawny, bald-headed man like Paul with a long nose, awkward, just preaches the gospel and realizes, I, he said this in 1 Corinthians, right? He said, I, 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 I don't have anything else but the word of God. I don't put any more stake. I don't put stake in my words or the, the fanciness of my words or the eloquence of my words, but I preach Christ and him crucified. I put my confidence in him and the word of God. Let the word do its work. Do we believe that? The problem today is not so much that the church doesn't believe in the inspired and inerrant word because many of them do on paper. The problem is that they don't live as if it's sufficient. What they've done is they've allowed other things in and the other things that they've allowed in, really you could say today with confidence that the subjective wins. They know that the objective word of God is, of course, it's an errand. And I don't think that there's an evangelical that'll stand up here and say, I don't think the word of God is inerrant or inspired. But the only logical thing to an inerrant word, as one said, is to preach the gospel, to preach the word of God line by line. It's the only logical thing to do, right? If you know that this word of God is perfect, without error, infallible, it can never err then you preach it with confidence, knowing that it will do its work. The problem is, is that we've allowed the subjective to, the win, to win. And the subjective is this. Let me know if this sounds familiar. Visions, dreams, prophecies, mysticism, and perhaps in some churches, pragmatism. That's what works. That's what is ultimately king in the churches right? Some of you don't believe me because the problem is, is that we'll say one thing, we'll say in life group, all right, we're going to read from the word, the word's true, but really what takes precedence is my feeling of what God supposedly subjectively said, right? I feel like God said this and now all of a sudden that takes precedence or the dream that you had last night. Or some mystical experience that you had. Isn't it interesting that every ear perks up in the room when that comes out of someone's mouth? The reason why that will destroy a church is because simply, even if you get in, uh, whether here I'm preaching, just for example, if I got up here and I just read the word, and all of a sudden at the end, I just felt, I feel like God's telling me this. Every ear would perk up and go home with that rather than the word of God being preached. It trains a whole church 
to trust the subjective feelings and visions of man rather than the inerrant, preserving word of God. And of course, that happens in life group, right? The same thing. Everyone sits around a circle, they're reading the scripture, the public reading of scripture. It's changing people's lives. It's hitting people in different places. The scripture has one meaning and hundreds of implications. You don't have to try to make it work for every person in the room. It'll take you forever. Trust the word to do its work. It's amazing. Martin Lloyd-Jones was asked one time in the 1960s, if preaching was still the primary way for, the, for church growth and transformation, he was wondering, is it still for today? Is it still that? I mean, the, many churches have all these books that they read, church growth, church growth, church growth, books, seminars, conferences, saying, you know, haven't times changed and don't we need better methods for church growth? Here's his answer. God hasn't changed. And man hasn't changed either. I love it. This is a little guy with a black robe on in London preaching his heart out. Look him up. Martin Lloyd-Jones, amazing. Man's needs are exactly and precisely what they've always been, and so is the remedy. Nothing has changed. You want to see churches grow? It's the same in the book of Acts. Preach the word. Just preach it. Share the gospel. Don't add to scripture. Don't try to make Jesus better looking. Isn't that ridiculous? I'm going to put a roller coaster in my church just to make Jesus look more relevant. Really? The church also in South Florida decided to get an elephant and bring it in to occupy the people's attention. I want a church who is so occupied and so infatuated with God's word, we can be here for hours, turning the pages. What's just being enthralled with the scripture, knowing that it's enough. Can't wait to hear the next word. What a wonderful church that would be. It'd be amazing. Lloyd-Jones said this, preaching the word is the primary task of the church the primary task of the leaders of the church, the people who are set in this position of authority, and we must not allow anything to deflect us from this, however good the cause, however great the need. I would say without hesitation that the most urgent need in the Christian church today is true preaching. And it is the greatest and the most urgent need in the church. It is obviously the greatest need of the world also. John Calvin said this, whenever Wherever we see the word of God purely preached and heard, there the church of God exists, even if it swarms with many faults. Guys, the church won't be perfect. It never will be. Don't come and try to find a perfect church. You won't find it. And I've heard pastors say, if you find it, leave, because uh, you just made it imperfect if you walked in the room. Louis Burkhoff said this, he's a reformer, a reformed theologian, he said, strictly speaking, it may be said that the true preaching of the word and its recognition as a standard of doctrinal life, it is the one mark of the church. Without that, it, it, there is no church. It is not a church if you don't preach the word. It is simply just some sort of entertainment center. It's to tickle people's ears for a time being. It never lasts. 
Do you know what the primary, uh, I've heard this said too, I mean, people have really given me a hard time with this one over the years. You know, Jesus' primary objective, yes, he was to die on the cross and all that, you know, preach the word, but really it's miracle signs and wonders. I mean, that's what he did, right? I mean, he just went around, he casted out demons and he performed lots of miracles. I mean, certainly the apostles did the same thing. But if you really look closely to the scriptures, that was primarily the, the way that Jesus, whether it's in a discipleship setting or whether it is the Sermon on the Mount setting uh, in both the Gospels and the book of Acts, that was the primary way that people were transformed was through the preaching of God's word. But people say, well, no, there, I mean, there isn't, where, I mean, miracles, signs, and wonders. That is to affirm God's word. You know what's really sad? If you make miracle signs and wonders your objective and you stand up front and that's what you're all about, then everybody's going to be giving a testimony of, I heard the other day, somebody said, man, it was amazing. I heard this testimony that God's doing some unique thing over here in Orlando and just people are getting, there's so many healings, so many healings. I never hear of any salvations. I never hear of true transformation. Isn't that interesting? I hear about people's eczema being cured. Read the Bible and buy yourself cream. I mean, I mean I'm fine if the Lord really did heal you, but praise the Lord. But what happens is we get into the habit of saying, well, you know, my, ex- I, my eczema went down to, uh, you know, from a 10 uh, to like a 2. Well, in the New Testament, it went from a 10 to a 0 every time. There was no scale with Jesus to be a true miracle. So really, if miracles affirm the word of God, then what does your false miracle affirm? I often wonder what that actually does. It actually leads people astray and ultimately leads people to man. And it leads people to give false testimony. Because if you don't have the next cool testimony, then you make the preacher look bad. And I just, you could probably tell I don't like that. (laughs) So why is it so important to preach the truth? Why is it so important that Paul gave his life to exhortation even after riots, which even gave more substance to why he did it? It's because Ephesians, turn with me to Ephesians 4.12. You could look at it yourself. Ephesians 4.12 to 14 For the equipping of the saints for the work of service. This is why he raises up leaders, all kinds of leaders. For the work of service, to building up of the body of Christ until we attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children. We are no longer to be tossed here and there by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. When we're in the van, we talk about these things with even our kids. How ridiculous false teachers are. How ridiculous, how easy it is to fall into deception. And if you don't think that is easy, then you are full of pride. 
It is so easy for us to fall into deception. Why do you think that every book of the New Testament talks about false teachers and you can almost make an argument in the old? When Moses gave the law, even in the Old Testament, he warned over and over and over again why it is important to teach your family the word of God. Why? Because it is easy for human beings, according to Proverbs, that the heart is deceitful above all else, to protect that little heart from deception. The only way, the only way to do that is through the word. And even as husbands, we talked about yesterday at the wedding, even as husbands, the only remedy for your spouse to keep them from falling away, according to Ephesians 5, is it says Eve was deceived, Right? the weaker vessel. How to, how do men lead their family well? Not by their intuition. Not by their feelings. Not by their pride and thinking they know better. But by the word. You know what that does for your kids and everybody else? Is, look, dad's not in control. The word is. So every child that grows up in Antioch or Orlando can say without a doubt that the word of God is in control of this household. That way we don't have to defend ourselves. I don't have to tell you, I told you so. The word always tells you so. Every single day, right? It's easy. There's no pressure. Second Peter 1.3 says this, seeing that his divine power has granted us to everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge, true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. It's given us everything we need. It is sufficient. Every time you say, look, I have had so many people, I'm serious, if I had money, a little dime for every time someone had told me I'd be a rich man. If someone, every time I had a dime for someone coming up to me saying, all right, John, the word, yes, the word, I love the word, but we need to balance that with the spirit. Sir, who wrote the word of God? The spirit. Hmm. So what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Show me a man who's filled with the Spirit, and I'll show you one who's filled with the Word. Every single time. You want to know what it feels like to be filled with the Spirit? It is not speaking gibberish. It is speaking the Word of God in your own language so that people can understand, so people can be transformed. Amen? I want a discerning church. I want a church who loves the truth. I want a church who desires to read the word and to go uh, up to one another and to speak that word like it says in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3. To speak the word of God over each other. To sing. If you're a singer, sing. As long as you can sing. If you can't, read the word. But when someone comes up to me and says, this is what the Lord is saying, there better be a chapter and verse. Otherwise, you could go back to your seat. Until you, 
it's interesting. You're like, well, I, I, you know, God is leading me. He's, he's speaking to me right now. Until you've, hey, I just want me to ask you this question. Have you mastered this book? Do you know every word in this book? If you know every word in this book, you can go ahead and stand up. We'll just... Every word. If you finally squeezed every word out of this book, every revelation, every truth out of this book, then perhaps you can say, this is what I feel like the Lord is saying. (laughs) There's so much. 66 books of the Bible. And you think that's not enough? It's amazing. The ignorance and the arrogance in the church today. Amazing. It's really, it's really incredible, honestly. There's so much there. I'll tell you what you need, though. You need a timely word. You need a word sometimes that's timely, right? And what we're saying is if he, uh, in Hebrews, there's two verses that are so important in Hebrews for us. One is to encourage each other because the, the hardness of our hearts and I know that every day of my life, if I, it, it's amazing. I just got an encouragement about three quarters of the way through this week. And I was just feeling, you know, half the time when I, when I preach, I, I just want to go run and hide under a rock. I'm like, oh, Lord, I hope that was okay, everything. <laughs> and you, you need encouragement. And I'll tell you, I got an encouragement about three quarters of the way through. Just someone gave me encouragement. I was just like, man, I can do it all over again. Let's go. Why? Because the word of God says that when you, when you don't neglect meeting together and you start to speak the word to each other, you're spurring one another on in what? Good deeds. That is, it's, it's the fuel. You put something in, the, in each other's tank with the word of God though. Isn't that good? It's amazing. And you know what that does? You don't have any pressure. The pressure's not on you. You don't have to be like, well, what am I gonna encourage them with? Well, you just... You just pick up the Bible and you pray and you say, Lord, I, I want to encourage my brothers and sisters. Sh- show me who to encourage in the room and he'll highlight it, that person, and highlight the scripture. And you don't have to be legalist. I don't want a bunch of legalists in the room. We don't have to be legalistic about that or manipulate into something. You know, oh, I, I, I think they shouldn't take that job, so let me find a scripture and a verse to help me. Uh, it's, and it's also understanding uh, another thing that you, that you need to know is not just giving somebody a chapter and verse out of context. That means that if you're having trouble interpreting the Bible, the best thing to do is just go over and pray for them. Don't give them a, a scripture out of context. That also can hurt someone. That can be very, you could be very manipulative with the word. So half the battle is you gotta believe in the inspired and errant word of God you got to know it's sufficient for every purpose. And thirdly, you got to know that, uh, you got to know the correct in- interpretation. You got to, but you know that 80% of Bible study, again, you know, these percentages can be a little flexible. <laughs> but 80% of good Bible study is observation. It's just looking at the text over and over and over and over and over again. And then coupling that with interpretive tools like context and language and, uh, and, and the alike, but reconstructing the original context and finding the meaning. 
But really, it's, it's observing the text. It's understanding what comes before, what comes after. It's looking at the text over and over again. It's for everyone. Biblical interpretation is for everyone in this room. There's no secrets. So why is this so important? It's because that we would have, we must preach the word because Paul understood that mature believers is the fruit of exhortation. Jude 3 says, I felt it necessary to write to you. He was gonna write about something else. Isn't that amazing? This book, if everything was going well, Jude would have wrote another letter, a different letter with a different context, with a different, uh, a, a different message. And what he said was, I felt it necessary instead to write to you this, appealing to you that you contend earnestly for the faith, which means the, the, the faith handed down to us by the saints. And that's not some subjective faith. That's our objective faith, the word of God, written word of God. We are to contend for it. I want a bunch of Bereans in the church. I love that when that afterwards you have more you you have permission to come up to me and just ask me what did you mean by this what's this passage how do I interpret this what what do I do with that we're we're thinking about doing more Q and A's as a church and we know we love that but we just got to find the right set and we we know how important that is we know how people grow by asking Bible questions or asking how do I interpret this or what does this mean so important please. I'm here afterwards. Ask our elders after service. That's why we're here. That's not intimidating. That's our job. Come with your questions. I had so many. I still have so many. I have so many questions. Stay a student. Be a lifelong student of the word. Paul continually modeled exhortation. He trusted the inerrant inspired world. He knew its authority. Now listen to this. Romans 4, 3 says, what does the scripture say? Then he said, Abraham believed God and was credited in righteousness. Romans 19, 17, for the scripture says. Romans 10, 11, for the scripture says. Galatians 3, 8, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. He continually preached the scriptures and he didn't just say the Bible says you know, th- this, this, and this, and they kind of paraphrase that. But he said, the scripture says, and he demonstrated that. Guys, when you're talking to people, don't just say the scripture says, demonstrate what the scripture says by pointing where it's at. That builds a lot of trust. They may not agree with it, but we at least have it before our eyes and they have it before their eyes. Does it make sense? 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, for I deliver to you as first importance what I've also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Paul just said, look, I'm preaching the word of God. I have nothing in me. There's nothing intuitive in me. I just want to preach what was handed down to me. We are a biblical church. We are not defending ourselves, but the scriptures Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says, my church. Ephesians 5, and 25, Jesus says, I am the head of the church. Colossians 1, 17, 18, I am the head of the church. Guys, we can confidently say, and you can confidently say, that this is Jesus's church, and he is the head, and he is the pastor of it. That takes an enormous amount of pressure off of us, that I am not leading this church, Jesus is. He is the one leading this church with his word. 
In other words, I don't have to defend. It's not like, oh, we do discipleship because, you know, we just figured that's a good thing to do because that's what we do. No. Jesus called us to make disciples. He says to make disciples. Therefore, that's why we do it. If we do anything in this church, we've got to back it up by scripture, chapter and verse. Now, there's a different way in which we maybe do that, right? We may have life group on Wednesday night, or we might go to, uh, you know, this particular country overseas, or this particular uh, way of doing it through maybe life groups or through uh, different kinds of modes of leadership. We, there's lots of different ways we do things. We do church at 1030 versus 11 o'clock. We have the freedom to do that. But we meet weekly on the Lord's day. That is commanded in scripture. First Peter 5, 2 and 3, shepherd the flock of God amongst you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion. In other words, this isn't, we're not trying to lord it over anyone. We're not trying to control people when we say that the word of God leads our church. We have to be careful. When you exhort your friends, when you exhort the people you're in discipleship with, you don't do it in a controlling way. You continually point to the word of God and to Christ, right? We do it voluntarily. According to the will of God, this is, a, this is a, technically to leadership, this is to pastors, not for sword gain, but with eagerness. This is to the elders, not yet as lording it over those allotted in your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. If any elder in this church is controlling, you need to say something. There's a way to go about that in the scriptures to appeal to a leader, to be able to uh, keep them. There's an accountability both uh, and, and Timothy, both how to uh, keep a leader accountable, but also in Matthew 18 is to keep also the congregation accountable, right? And church discipline. There's all these checks and balances in the word of God so that there's a healthy church, not a controlling one. Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love. Now what that means is you're to speak the truth with kindness coming behind you. Look, you may find that somebody is being uh, rude when they speak truth or um, being hurtful, you could say something like this. Look, what you're, what you're doing, what you speak is, is truth. The manner in which you do it hurts. You have every right to appeal to that person because what we're saying, we need to speak the truth in love. Amen? This whole uh, last year, we were talking about uh, speaking the truth in love, but more from the context that the culture should not hijack the pulpit. Uh, the, church, the, the culture shouldn't come in and dictate what the, what the pastor should say from the word of God. We, the, to be loving is to speak the truth. But to balance that out, we must speak the truth and we must do it with kindness, Doing, we're I mean, First Peter three fifteen, right? Says we must do it with gentleness and respect when we're speaking the truth. Another thing Paul modeled, or he, uh, the Book of Acts model, is that in Acts four, four uh, six four is that we must understand that there are people in this church that sh- cannot be busy with all the pastoral care, the administration, etc., because they must devote themselves to the study of God's word. If a church leadership gets too busy, uh, then that could also hinder biblical preaching. And like I said, just to end this section here, the biggest need for today 
is the preaching of God's word. 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 4 says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus who is judge, the living and the dead, and by appearing and, uh, appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, re- reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come, and I think we're here today in every season this is, in every culture, in every era, when the people will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Happens all the time. Colossians 1.28, this is why we proclaim him, so that we admonish every man, teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. The reason why we preach the word, the reason why we have our discipleship school is so that people will be mature in Christ. And when they do, there's incredible joy when people bear fruit. It's nothing like it, right? Amen? You see it in your own lives. When there's fruit, it's so joyful, so peaceful to know Christ. It's so peaceful to, to see your life becoming more, having more of a hatred towards sin, to be more sensitive to sin. You want to know if you're a believer? You hate your sin more. You become more sensitive. The little things that you used to do before, it just nerves you. You want it gone. Number two, Paul demonstrated his love By the way, we're only in verse one and two. (laughs) Paul was generous with his church. Paul was generous. We need more generosity here. We need to demonstrate our love towards one another by giving. And we do. I mean, I've seen it so many times, especially mission trip season. It's amazing how many testimonies come and just people giving to each other. It's wonderful. But just not only just with mission trips, but just find out the needs in the church and bless them. He traveled uh, to Ephesus. Of course, you know this. He traveled to Ephesus to Jerusalem by bringing an offering uh, to Jerusalem by way of Macedonia and Achaia. And you realize that he went the opposite direction because of his love. And it just demonstrated again that Paul just said, hey, this is no cheap love, but this is gonna cost me something so that we can demonstrate to the Jerusalem church that we love them, that we're unified with them. The Gentiles and Jews are together in one. First Corinthians, now I wanna show you something just even for your own Bible study. First Corinthians was written from Ephesus. This is important because in First Corinthians 16, one through four, it says, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also, one on the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections may be made when I come. When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. And then in 2 Corinthians, it was written from Macedonia. And this is the whole context. It's important to understand that, that all these letters, they, 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 there's a level of overlap and you get to learn the context as you, and the meaning of the text and it enhances your study of the word of God. So 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 4 says, now brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia that in great ordeal 
in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, this is how we're supposed to give, beyond their ability, they gave according, or they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of the participation and the support of the saints. You know, when people say, give, give until it hurts, that is not biblical. You're called to give according to what you have, to the proportion. That means everybody in this room is going to give differently. In fact, you know, they always use the poor widow as an example. She gave everything that they had. That was a broken system. Jesus was pointing out to that poor widow. He's pointing to his disciples and look at what they're doing to her. That's false system of Judaism that, that were burdening that woman. But nevertheless, she's doing it out of her heart, but also it was such a corrupt system. All these people were giving out of their abundance. They were giving so, uh, they were flaunting what they were giving. This woman just gave, but they were, they were taking advantage of her. And you know what the, the prosperity churches and charismatic churches, they, they take advantage of people. They just give what it hurts, give till it hurts, and then you'll receive your blessing. No, biblically speaking, we're to give out of the abundance of what we have out of their liberality. There's freedom in giving. What a wonderful thing. In fact, I think that when we begin to do that, there's going to be more than enough. In fact, we might be, just as it says in the Old Testament, we might be telling people stop giving because there's so much coming in. More control, less fruit. Less control, more freedom, more fruit. Second Corinthians 9, 6 to 7, I say, this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he had purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion. Don't be forced to give. It's a freedom to give for God loves a cheerful giver. And then in Romans, this is the, he wrote this in Corinth as he's making his way back and then back to Jerusalem, his way east and then west, or I'm sorry, west and then east, my bad. Romans 15, 25 to 28, but now I am going to Jerusalem, serving the saints for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so. And they were indebted to them for if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they're indebted to minister to them also in the material things. Therefore, when I have finished this and have put my seal on, on this fruit of theirs, I will go on my way to Spain. The generosity that Paul modeled and the love he modeled to Jerusalem actually brought great unity to the whole church. And I believe that God wants us to be generous like this. In 1 John 3, 16 and 18, he says, look, when we love by this, that he had, when we know love by this, that he had laid down his life for us and that we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But who, whoever has the world's goods and see his brother in need and clothes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? We never want to take advantage of the people in this church. We want to give. We want to give. Little children, let not love let us not love with word or by tongue, but indeed in truth. And Amy Carmichael said this one time, missionary in India, you can always give without loving. 
but you cannot love without giving. Isn't that beautiful? John Chrysostom, an early church father, charity is indeed a great thing and a gift of God. And when it is rightly ordered, likens us to God himself as far as that is possible, for it is charity which makes the man. And one pastor once said, we are never more like God than when we give. Let us be a generous, loving church, demonstrating our love by exhorting one another in the truth and by giving each other, giving to each other. John Calvin said this, that there cannot be a surer rule nor a stronger exhortation to the observance of it that when we are taught that all the endowments which we possess are divine deposits, God gives us so much entrusted to us for the very purpose of being distributed for the good of our neighbor. What we have is to be shared with other people in the house. And we have great givers in this church. I mean, people, there are, there are people with the gift of generosity. They give because that is their gift. They enjoy giving. But I'm challenging everyone here today to give, not because you might have this gift of generosity, but because you are his. That is his nature to give. And now that we have a new nature like his, we give. Paul preserved, number three, verse three, it says, number three, he, he demonstrated his love by perseverance. It says, and there he, spent three, there he spent three months, and when a plot was formed against him by the Jews, as he was about to sail from Syria, he decided to return to Macedonia. And he was accompanied by Sopater of Berea, the son of Paris, and by Aristarchus and Segundus of Thessalonians, of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and Tychicus, and Trophimus of Asia. By these he had gone on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. We sailed from Philippi, probably met up with, uh, with Luke, he was there, and now you start seeing the book of Acts switch to a we, so you know that that includes Luke, the author, after three days in unleavened bread, and came to them at Troas within five days, and there we stayed seven days. And so Paul continued, even though there was a plot against him, he kept going, he kept going, and we won't want to belabor that point, but he had companions. He continued to invest. He had a companion that really represented, it, represented every single church that he got around to, for most of the churches, probably not every single one, but you could see there, Sopater from Berea, and then we had one from Thessalonica, Derby, Lystra, Timothy was from Lystra, Trophimus, Ephesians, uh, or Ephesus, excuse me, Titus from Achaia, Corinth. He had friends. We have friends from all over the world. And Paul never did ministry alone. And so he continued to probably, he probably figured, hey, my life is uh, coming to most likely a close here and I want to pour into these guys so that they have the truth. And of course, then you figure out, as we're going to talk about next week, his farewell to Ephesus to the leaders and he gave everything to them before he left. And we'll talk about that address next week. Beloved, patient, and enduring. And lastly here, we'll finish this up, verse seven. On the first day of the week, when we gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. There are many lamps in the upper room were there, or we were there, gathered together, and there was a young man named Eutychus sitting on the windowsill, sinking into a deep sleep. And as Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep and fell down from the third floor and picked him up dead. 
But Paul went down and fell upon him, and after embracing him, he said, Do not be troubled, for his life is in him. And when he gone back, he'd gone back up and had broken the bread and eaten, he talked with them for a long while after daybreak, and then left. Can you imagine that meeting? They took away the boy alive and were greatly comforted. But we were going on ahead to the ship to sail for Essos, and intending from, the, from there to take Paul on board for for so he had arranged it, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Essos and, and took him on board and began to Mytilene, sailing from there, we arrived the following day opposite of Chios. And the next day we crossed over to Samos and, and following we came to Miletus. And this is what we pick up next week. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia probably because of the riot, most likely people were after him, for he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, for the day of Pentecost. His, his original goal was to get there by Passover. He missed that, so 50 days later, he'd be there for Pentecost. And then once he was there, he called to the Ephesians, Ephesian leaders and the elders and spoke to them. We'll pick up that next week. But he, number four, he invested in the people. Now, I want to bring to your attention one thing, because I think this is important in case you talk to your Seventh-day Adventist friends. Understand that this is the first, uh, I guess you can say, first Sunday service. They met on the first day of the week, which is Sunday. There was no obligation in the New Testament. There was no command to meet on the Sabbath. Seventh-day Adventists are wrong. There is, it is legalism uh, and extra-biblical to command Christians to uh, meet on the Sabbath. And so they met on the Lord's Day, which was on Sunday, in fact, in, the, in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council, they did not impose the Sabbath on new Gentile believers. They also, uh, the New Testament was clear, there was no, no commands. Uh, Paul did not command, of, uh, the other apostles did not command people to meet on Sabbath, but on the Lord's Day on Sunday. In fact, the early church father, Ignatius, said, let every friend of Christ keep the Lord's Day as a festival, the resurrection day, the queen and chief of all days. Justin Martyr said this, on the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together in one place and the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. <laughs> Sunday is the day on which we all hold our common assembly because Christ Jesus, our Savior, on the same day rose from the dead. That's why we celebrate, we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord. And Tertullian said, he noted that the Sabbath, he said the Christians thought the Sabbaths were strange that we're now in a new day, which we celebrate on Sunday. Believers met house to house, ultimately up until the first church building, which was recorded in 250 AD. So they met house to house. In other words, a lot of people say, well, we only have to meet, the only uh, church, uh, the only way to, re- to meet biblically is only house to house. That's not true. Uh, but they were to gather together on Sunday mornings to celebrate the Lord's Supper and to celebrate the, the, the uh, which we're going to do today, by the way. We're going to do communion today to close. Paul preached, and also, as you notice in there, the word discussed, which is very important, Q&A. Q&A is part of our education. It's not just monologues, preaching, but it's also discussions, and that's why we do our Antioch Discipleship School and also even Q&As after service and, and whatnot. We're, like I said, we're going to try to do more and more of those in the coming weeks. But I love that Paul 
I think the point here is that Paul had such a love for the church. And also, I want to show you that the, that the believers told him, please, Paul, stay. He was on his way. He, he, had to get, he had to get back to Jerusalem. He had to get to Pentecost. And they're like, Paul, just stay. We love when you preach. We love when you expand the scriptures. We want to know the meaning of the word. We want to know the word of God. That's a hungry church, isn't it? Even through pulling all-nighters. And a guy fell out the windowsill and died. And said, hold on a second. And go downstairs, fell upon him like Elijah, and, uh, and brought him back up. Hey, bud, let's get back up. We've got more to do. <laughs> sit, back on the, sit back on the windowsill and, and, and have communion and, and preach the word more. It was amazing. In other words, nowhere to go. It's a wonderful thing to be with the friends and family, right? It's a wonderful thing to open up the word and preach the gospel and to go around the room and pray for one another and encourage each other, break bread together. There's nothing like it. Nothing like it. He wanted to spend, in fact, they said, why, why was he, why did he decide to walk instead of taking a boat? Many scholars say, well, he just wanted to simply spend more time with his disciples. Paul loved his people. Paul loved the church. Sure, he was in a rush. Sure, he had other things to do. But because the reason why he was always in a rush is because he just wanted to get around more people. He couldn't wait to bring and see the faces of the Jerusalem church when he brought in the cash and showed that the Gentiles loved the, the Jewish church, the ones that they were grafted into. I think it's obvious that we can't just tell each other that we love each other. Don't just go around talking about your love. Demonstrate it. Demonstrate it. Speak the truth. Do it in love. Do it in gentleness, in other words. Give. Give with your wallets. Give with your time. Open your house up. Be hospitable. Endure when it gets hard, when you're tested in your love, when someone gets annoying. You're, oh, this is wonderful. Oh, I just love this. How can everybody not love the church? I mean, this is so easy. So, and then you're tested the next week. And then you realize, <laughs> now what? You endure. What, do you have a better option? You're going to go fellowship with the world? We're made for each other. We're made to endure and yeah, we could take persecution even inside the house. It's hard. There's a fence. But I think he's also talking about enduring and not letting your love grow cold because of the, the lack of love we see in the world. And we're seeing more of that, aren't we? More hatred. Really, Matthew 24 says the love of many will grow cold. Just don't let your fire burn out. That's the key. And then lastly, let's invest in one another. Let's be incarnational. Let's be in each other's lives. Let's love each other with a, a love that is demonstrated. And being in each other's lives, it's so difficult to do, but that is what Jesus has called us to. So as we take communion this morning, uh, I'd, I personally ask if you're not a believer, take it. But if you want to give your 
life to the Lord. I love the, the fact that, you know, and if you turn with me to quickly, as we take communion, to uh, 1 Corinthians 11, where it says to examine yourself, to actually look and examine yourself to see if you should actually eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And the Lord tells us to do this in remembrance of him. Really, the only two ordinances that the church needs to occupy itself with is baptism and communion. It says, For I received from the Lord that which I have also delivered to you, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is, is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. There's nothing special, really, in the bread and the wine. There's, there's, nothing, there's nothing supernatural in that. But we take a part of these elements because we're reminded of what Jesus did for us. And that in itself is a powerful thing. And we do it together. In the same way, he took the cup and also after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this and as often as you drink of it, do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink of the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And just as I prayed earlier today, we believe that Jesus is coming back and we should desire that. And we, we pause now and say, thank you, Lord, for dying on the cross and shedding your blood. And that wine is symbolic of his shed blood for you, that while you were sinners, he died for you. Not because you could earn it. He knew you couldn't do that. You're dead in your trespasses. Children of wrath. Couldn't do anything. But that he came and he died for you. And the for, there is forgiveness this morning. There's forgiveness in his death. There's not supernatural about his blood. But by him dying, he shed blood. He died a horrific death. And he, those who trust in what he did on the cross, you have forgiveness. Past, present, and future. Forever. You're his. He's your father. You could call him Abba Father because of what he's done. And his body was broken, beaten. And in Isaiah, it says that by his stripes, we are healed. And that can be a physical healing, but more than that, really what that passage means is he has given us spiritual healing, reconciliation with the Father. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, for he does not judge the body rightly. In other words, you could judge yourself, or the Lord could judge you. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number of are asleep. In other words, some people died, literally, because they took the communion in an unworthy matter. But if we are judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. God gives us even a grace in that. So then, my brethren, when you are come together to eat, wait for, the one, wait for one another. If one is hungry, let him eat at home 
so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. So as we take communion this morning, like I said, communion is only for believers, just as baptism is only for believers. So go ahead and examine yourself. And even some, I would encourage you to even examine yourself to see if you're in the faith, as it says in 2 Corinthians He says to examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. And I would take some moments to see, are you his? Are you going to be the one that calls on the name of the Lord and him say, I never knew you? Or can you find proof that you're his by going through the tests of 1 John? And Paul really was, that's one of the tests. He demonstrated his love by giving by loving the truth, by preaching the truth, by enduring to the end, by being, you want to know if you're a believer, you persevere. You stay. You remain in him, John 15. You stay with him. You stay with Christ. So I'm just going to pray for us, and then what I want you to do is go ahead and uh, you'll come up on the sides, you'll come up this way, and then you'll go through the center aisle and then back to your seat that way, just like this. And, uh, And then... You guys can be dismissed. They'll just play in the background. They'll sing a song or something. And then, um, and you guys go ahead. Please, if you could take the body and the, you could, or the, the bread, I'm sorry. Take the bread, dip it, and then come back to your seat and just examine yourself. And uh, let it be an act of worship, thanking God for what he's done for you. And that's an incredible unifying experience here in this room as we do it together as believers. So Father,